What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, March 21st, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 210. Back after contracting what can only be described as the plague, my name is Caleb Haig, and with me, becoming a world-traveling speaker, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Going well, going well. Yeah. So tell me, have you, uh, now for those who don't know, this might be news to people out there. Rob was contacted by some folks down in good old Trinidad. And uh, they had listened to the show, and they thought Rob was so eloquent and so well-learned that they said, hey, <laughs> come on down. We want you to speak at a conference. Now, am I to understand that you have procured your plane tickets down to Trinidad? Yeah, it's going to be this summer, and excited about that. It's going to be a wonderful uh, blessing to be able to just sit and study together with some believers in a, a different culture and enjoy their their gracious hospitality and to uh, hopefully see a little bit you know different part of the world than I've ever been it's on the Caribbean I'm not gonna lie to you I don't know a, a whole ton about uh, Trinidad but uh, I can imagine that it's a lot warmer than here especially in the summer right exactly all right well hey what is up everybody thank you so much for tuning in to Messiah matters. Um, I want to say hello to the few people that have shown up in the chat room. Thank you for joining us. We are happy to have you with us. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Messiah Matters is brought to you by Torah Resource. Torah Resource exists to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. Now, for those who uh, are unaware, my father, Tim Hag, the president of Torah Resource, has been doing an ongoing Bible study uh, and he's been doing it now for, oh, I don't know, I would probably say 20 years or so. And he's gone through, well, let's see here, Galatians, Romans. He's gone through Hebrews. He's gone through the entire Gospel of Matthew. And now he has just finished up 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, so that study is is done. And now he moves on to a different book. And he has uh, settled on the book of Ephesians, which is going to be fantastic. Um, I'm excited for it. Uh, he does it live every Wednesday night starting at 6 o'clock, I think maybe, or 6.30 um, Pacific time. And if you'd like to be a part of that study live or uh, if you'd like to sign up so you can watch it live you can uh, or watch it after the fact, you can do so by going to TorahResource.com, hovering over Institute, then go down to the Ephesians study. You can register for that class there. It's totally free. 
And uh, if you'd like to uh, check that out after he has recorded it, uh, then we post it every single week, and you can download the notes and, and all that kind of stuff. Just another free resource from TorahResource.com. And, of course, uh, Messiah Matters is also brought to you by the generous support of our listeners. We are very, very blessed and, and thankful to the people who uh, continue this show on, and they do that by donating to Torah Resource. If you would like to help support this show, you can do so by going to TorahResource.com, clicking the Donate button, and then uh, you can make a one-time donation. And if you do that, make sure to put into the comments that uh, you are listening to Messiah Matters and that uh, uh, and that you appreciate it because uh, it's always nice to hear those kind of messages. All right, now on to more important things. Now, I put this in the show notes. For those who would like to get show notes, you can do that by going to TorahResource.com. Hover over radio and go down to Messiah Matters. You can sign up for our show notes there. Okay, now enough plugging all of our stuff. Um, in our show notes, I put in a link, and we don't have to talk about this. I don't even think that uh, Rob knows about this. The link is for an article in Answers from Genesis, and uh, they wrote something on uh, the Hebrew Roots, the Hebrew Roots movement, and basically... Uh, they gave a pretty decent description, actually, um, of what the Hebrew Roots movement is, and um, they were not dogmatic, or they, you know, they didn't make a ton of sweeping statements until they got down to theology. And then, of course, the theology section of that article, which you can find in the show notes, is uh, is basically the same old. Uh, you're not really listening to what we're saying answers, you know, um, he tries to explain Matthew five seventeen by saying he's that Matthew five seventeen is obviously not talking about the law of Moses, obviously, <laughs> obviously, but it's talking about the, a first century Jew, right? <laughs> right. But talking rather about the uh, commands that he gave his, this, uh, his disciples that were not found in the Torah, um, it's just, I mean, it's very interesting, to say the least. We, uh, we've we been asked to, you know, somebody asked us to respond to it. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think we are going to respond to it. It's it's the same old thing. If you want to hear our response, go to Torah Resource and just start reading articles. Um, you know, is the Torah for Gentiles? Is the Torah for everyone? These are the kind of things that you can check out. So, um, yeah, anyway. Uh, but just to let people know, yes, I have seen the Answers in Genesis um, article, and uh, yes, it is disappointing. I think, honestly, what people don't realize in the Christian church, and maybe I'm off base here, but I think one of the things that people aren't realizing is that essentially the Hebrew roots, well, I shouldn't say that, the Torah movement, because I'm not sure if we really like uh, the overarching Hebrew roots, but the Torah movement, even within the church, right, is something that I believe is of God, and it is furthering the Reformation. It's continuing on the Reformation. So you have the Reformation from the Catholic Church by the Reformers on um, Sola Scriptura, justification by faith, taking away the power from the Pope, these kind of things. And now, in our time, you have a continued Reformation, and that continued Reformation is seeing the uh, uh, is expounding on what sanctification is. Um, you know, and, and in this article, he has a whole section of just, you know, can you be justified by works and whatnot? Once again, if that's what you think the Hebrew roots or messianic movement is, you are not listening to at least not to everyone, because that's certainly not what we're saying. Justified by faith alone. Anyway. Okay. Um, it is a good time to have a book review. We have a segment every week now called 
buy it, borrow it, or bag it. And uh, buy, borrow, or bag. Ba- buy, borrow, or bag. And we should have some uh, some intro music, but I haven't gotten into it. Bag. Actually, you know what? Um, before we came bag. on air, bag. Before we came on air, uh, Mr. Van Hoff and I were were listening to some of our. Our old school, old school soundboard, and let's just play some of these so we can remind our chat room some of the fun we used to have. A rabbi composes. He creates thoughts. He tells stories that may never have happened, but he does not exaggerate. <laughs> he tells stories that may never have happened, but he does not exaggerate. Uh yeah. There's a there's a uh, there's a couple of good ones. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. My wife gave us this one. If you want to add glitter to that glue you're sniffing, that's fine, but don't dump your wackadoo all over us. <laughs> If you want to add glue to the glitter, the, uh, glitter to the glue you're sniffing. Oh man, that's good. Anyway, well, hey, before we before we do your book review, what's been going on with you, man? It's been it's been two weeks. I know I missed last week. I felt like there was a there was a hole in my heart uh, Wednesday morning. I know, like right? Empty space, but uh, I have filled it with with uh other good things but now <laughs> our, our so we had we got news we got news that uh, both uh tim Haig's paper and uh one of my submissions to sbl was accepted for right. november right which Very is exciting. which is good news yeah and uh so continuing to work on that the um again it's just wonderful that the national library of israel is putting um high-res, viewable, you know, you can zoom in, go page to page, uh, images of of Hebrew manuscripts from the Middle Ages up until, you know, the printing press and beyond. A lot of good uh, resources there. Now, of course, to... To search those and read those, you have to be able to read Hebrew. Otherwise, you're, you're lost. You're not, you're not going to know what you're looking at. You're looking at you're um, looking at pictures of Hebrew. <laughs> and, and not only that, there's quite a variety of scripts being used. Uh, you know, because it's not a uniform uh, hand. You know, and so um, you you need to. You know, it's going to challenge you on that front as well. But uh, and it's not digital, so it's not searchable. You have to just. It's just like here are the pictures. High-res images. It's like you had someone put a giant book in front of you, and you're flipping through it, right? And so, it really challenges you with um, with your Hebrew. You know, of course, verses aren't there's aren't chapter verse numbers stuff like this. So, um, you're uh, entering a world that is pre-printing press, pre the assumption, like today, you know, we pick up a Bible and we've got all this stuff, you know, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at, right? All this stuff that's added that helps us. And I really see how much that makes us lazy right? having that. Uh, and this is not talking about digital yet, even digital phone kind of uh, Bibles. But but back in, uh, so this is a thousand years ago, basically, you know, the, the years where we have the Aleppo Codex, Leningrad Codex, all these others. Um, and it is an opportunity to enter into uh, kind of through your imagination and through just sitting there looking at the same text that a scribe, a Jewish scribe a thousand years ago created and was used by Jewish scholars to uh, to see what 
differences and things we take for granted today that are not there. And uh, that's it's it's amazing because uh, there are so many ways that the printing press has has changed civilization, you know, over the last 500 years. One week without Messiah Matters. And Rob becomes super geek, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like nerding out on. Bi- I was already, <laughs> I was already a geek. I know. Oh, you're just adding the super. Yes, you're adding the super. Um, I want to, I want to comment on something in the chat room here. Ricky White says, in regard to the so-called Reformation comment, I don't see the return to the commandments of Hashem as a re- Reformation, but rather a return to the ways of Hashem. Well, what do you think the Reformation was? The Reformation was a return to the ways of Hashem. Step, it, it was re- reformation of the church, that is, of the ecclesia, uh, back to biblical theology. Well, it was a trajectory. Maybe we should clarify. Uh, some of the good fruits—now, I don't have the comments open because it slows down my computer, but the, the trajectory of the Reformation is that of sola scriptura, right? Look, we can't take your hierarchical, you know— uh, generational authority structure and privileging of who has access to what and rules and all this stuff. We, we, we can't accept that as not in scripture. We need to trust scripture. And so that's one break. What, what are the, what are the five yeah, souls? Getting, then after getting, that is getting back and to, it's by, by faith, by faith and by grace. Why is that important? Because, because the Bible the, says it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the church was teaching something different, right? The Roman church and that's was the point. teaching, that's what Reformation right, is, though. Exactly. That's my point. So this is that, trajectory now, but I would agree that they didn't go far enough, right? But 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 the, they, the whole but the they whole made, point, they put their life on the line. They but, many of them were burned at the stake. Okay, for hang on the just sake a second. Wait, 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 hold. Because the point is, is that what the Reformation did was take the church, the the Christian church, and say, no, you have strayed away from the Bible. We are going to reform the church back to the Bible. And that's what they did, and what the what the what the Torah movement is doing is saying, no, the church has moved away from the Bible. We need to reform the church back to the Bible. It's still a reformation. I see what you're I see what you're getting at, as the uh, what they say semper reformanda, reformanda right? All right. like in other words, there's an a continual challenge that we're in in the world of traditions of man versus the Word of God, and right. Yeshua raises his disciples to be to be on that edge. Right. Uh, that's that's a, a, a fair point. OK, let's move on because we got a lot to talk about. And we've already we've already been yapping for, what, 18 minutes here. Good gracious. Um, OK, well, let's go to your book review. Uh, it is your turn. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> someone else says the Christian church wasn't planted by God. Every plant which he, my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Uh, I, I I strongly disagree. Certainly the Christian church is in not only the plan of God, but the scheme of God that he has. Uh, for, the reason you have an English Bible today is because of the Christian church. So um, it's certainly within God's plan uh, to use the Christian church. It's cer- certainly something that he, that he planted. Um, beyond that, the fact that we have... Uh, the preservation uh, of the scriptures, yeah. Preservation of the scriptures, so preservation of a faith in Christ... I, I can't stand this when people down the church. If it weren't for the church, chances are you would not you would not either be alive right now or you would not be uh, you, there would be no uh, faith in Christ on the earth. 
So, uh, no, I, I totally reject that. That is, that is a false statement. Um, and it's an offensive statement, to be honest with you. Okay, let's move on. What's your book for the day? My book here is uh, one that we're going to talk about a little bit. Yes. This is, it's called Passover and Easter, Origin and History to Modern Times. So there's the cover there. It's pretty bland. It's, it's not a real good looking book. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, low cost. It's uh, 1999. Heavy hitters not, in not, there, though. Heavy hitters not, in there. 1999 is not the price. <laughs> that's the year. It is copyright 1999, University of Notre Dame Press, um, and it's edited by Paul Bradshaw, who's a Christian liturgy scholar. And probably, Lawrence, probably one of the leading Eucharistic scholars as well. Sure. And then Lawrence Hoffman, who is the, the parallel in the Jewish side, so studying Jewish liturgical and ritual tradition and, and how they emerged. So those are the two editors. So you've got a, a Christian and a, a Jewish uh, team up here to edit this volume. And the um, it contains an article by Israel Yuval, which was which originally which originally was was published in Hebrew in the uh, in Tarbitz, which was October ni- uh, 1995 for Hebrew University. But it was tra- uh, translated into English here. Um, and it's called Easter and Passover as Early Jewish Christian Dialogue. I just have a fun story of, uh, of my acquisition of this book. It was in 2003, I believe it was, that I went to a conference at University of Notre Dame where it was in honor of E.P. Sanders, and they had a number of speakers come, and one of them was Israel Yuval, and he gave a talk. And I bought this book there, and then I, ha- he, he, I had him sign uh, – Signed my article, which nice. is kind of cool here. And he put a little Hebrew because uh, it was Erev Pesach. Uh, so he, he wrote Erev Pesach in here, which was the, so it was like right the season before Passover that this was happening here. Anyway, uh, so this is a great book. I'm sh- I don't know if it's still in print. It's, it's volume five of the two liturgical traditions series. And I know there's at least six ver- books in that series. Of, it's called Two Liturgical Traditions published by University of Notre Dame. I only have volume five. Now, there's an article by, I think, Lawrence Hoffman. He references an article in volume six, and I'm like, man, I'm going to have to get volume six. Um, But anyway, so that's the book, Passover and Easter. The Yuval article is available on his academia.edu website for free. So you can download this article for free. But the book, has he's got more than one article, more than one chapter in here, and there's a bunch of other contributors as well. Uh, so that's my, I say, buy it or borrow it for sure. Uh, yeah, actually. For sure, for sure, download his, uh, Yuval's article from his academia uh, site. Justin in the chat room says that uh, he can get it through his local library. So, uh, you know, you might be able to borrow it from your local library. There you go, yeah. Anyway, is it, it now it, it's 1999, so it's, what, pushing 20 years now. Right, um, which is which is fine, and so uh, we might uh, have sharpened some certain uh, stances or w- with new information subsequent to this. So we always, when we look at a book, we want to look at its date. We want to look at the the people involved, what they were studying at the time, and let that be kind of a benchmark. But we don't uh, deny that there could be twenty years of, of further development 
that can help sharpen or eliminate some suggestions that the scholars were making back in, back at this time. The basic uh, here, I'll transition into kind of what I think what we're going to talk about today. Do it, which is which is uh, kind of the thesis that Yuval has here um, in his article. So his article here, starting on page ninety-eight, is Easter and Passover as early Jewish Christian dialogue. So his thesis is basically this: is we can't just re- look at the Passover Haggadah, whatever that means today, like a traditional seder, and say, "Oh, this points to Yeshua and this points to Yeshua," or things like that. That is uh, not what we would call a, a historical approach. That would be a mid- Christian midrashic approach to uh, to add meaning or suggest meaning where it wasn't actually transmitted in the within the Jewish tradition. Rather. What Lawrence Hoffman and Bradshaw and then Yuval are, are doing is they're saying we need to look at what's our data over time and the development of these liturgical traditions, both on the Jewish side and Christian side. What Yuval wants to do is say is to say that after the destruction of the temple in the year 70, we have kind of the, the, the crisis of not having the temple and then the ongoing right. desire of Jewish communities to keep a Passover. Right. And over the over the decades, you know, there's debate. Sometimes they might have got it back, you know, gone back to Jerusalem and sacrificed a lamb or something. We, we, we don't know all the details. There's a lot of fuzziness. But the obligation to tell a story was there. The obligation to, to remember the day and to tell the story of, of redemption was there. And that uh, Yuval is going to say that the Passover Haggadah that develops over the centuries to come between the destruction of the temple and the Middle Ages is, uh, or it cannot be separated from polemic or back and forth response with what Yeshua discipleship groups are doing. Quote, the Christian church in in some, some regard. And that, so in other words, another way to look at this is there's no fixed Haggadah in the first century. Well, okay, hang on just a sec. Well, the, the, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with you, but let's let's start in just a little bit different place, for especially for our listening audience. Um, what do we really know about the first century Passover? Might be a, a good, uh, and, and the pa- Passover celebration might be a good place to start. So we know, uh, and, and this is, uh, um, somebody asked in, on, on that book, somebody asked, um, uh, does this book speak of the origin of Easter? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a matter of fact a really good article by Bradshaw on the origins of Easter. Right. Okay. And this is all done through. Just a reminder. This is this is histor- These are guys who know the languages, know the history. They're coming with a historical hat to the degree that they are able. They don't. All, they're not always able to separate their religious ideas, but they're not. They're not preaching. This is not homiletical. This is academic. Right. Historic. Right. Okay, so let's ask the question, what do we really know about the first century Passover celebration? We've talked about this a little bit in past shows, but just a refresher. Okay, the, there's three main things that I would pose um, that are part of the Passover celebration in the first century that we know. And that is, there was the Passover lamb, roasted in bitter herbs. There was matzah, unleavened bread, right? And then there was the two festival Sabbaths that went along with Passover, the one at the beginning and one at the end. Mm-hmm. This is what we know. 
Besides that, we know almost nothing about because... Right. We don't... For example, one thing we don't know, Caleb, and we've talked about this before, we don't know that diaspora Jews were eating lamb. We don't... Technically speaking... Now, I would I would disagree with this, uh, with this thesis, but people have... Um, a lot of people, including Brant Petrie and others, have suggested that there was no celebration of the Passover out within the diaspora. In other words, if you lived outside of Jerusalem or outside of Israel in the first century and you weren't making the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, it is argued that they didn't do anything, that there was no celebration I, at all. I think that's—I I can't I, imagine that. I disagree with that completely, and I think that First Corinthians is a perfect example of uh, people celebrating Passover outside of Jerusalem in the diaspora while the temple still stood. Anyway, not the point. Um, so then the other question is, okay, well, what do we see in um, even in the Gospels that uh, might, might give us um, uh, some ideas of, of first century celebration? Well, the problem that we have is that, first of all, we, uh, there wasn't one monolithic celebration. In other words, not everyone ha- was saying the same prayers or whatnot. Everything, we think that uh, since things weren't necessarily set, everything was different according to different communities. So what Yeshua does in the Gospels, that might be specific to his group, or you know he might be ma- instituting new things uh, within the Passover celebration. Uh, we just don't know. Were there set prayers? We have no clue. Now, Daub, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we get to Afikomenos, um, Daub suggests that there was some some set uh, uh, traditions that went went along, and maybe there were, but we don't know what they were. A lot of t- uh, times, people will think that some of the traditions that we have today have carried over from the first century, and they'll point to the Gospels to prove that. So, for instance, a perfect example is the leaning, right? In the Passover Haggadah today, uh, we lean on one elbow, and we say that we lean on one elbow, we recline at the table because this is what our ancestors, because our ancestors were slaves and now we are free men. Well, this is almost certainly not a tradition that goes back to the first century, Rather, it was cultural to recline at tables, not for Passover, but all the time. And we see this within the Gospels, right? They recline at other times besides Passover. And um, it's, I think it's pretty well established and, and, and thought by most scholars now that um, the, as, as culturally uh, it went from, um, from reclining at table to sitting at table, the, I, this tradition kind of got accepted into the Passover uh, Haggadah. Now, whether or not it was a response to the Gospels or not, we don't know. But we certainly know that it was uh, culturally traditional to, uh, to recline at a at table. Not everywhere. Once again, this is not monolithic. The, de- the Dead Sea uh, community seems to have sat at table instead of reclined at table. But overall, the, uh, the Greco-Roman tradition, and it seems like also within Yeshua's followers, was to recline at table. So this is a tradition that got accepted later into the Passover Haggadah. Um, okay. Anything else on, on that before we jump into Yuval's specifics? No, no, that's, that's fine. That's a good review. The, uh, yeah, so Yuval is just pushing that, that idea, the, this idea that we can't make presumptions. We got to be careful about what we presume. And now Yuval's coming from a trained, um, historian in rabbinics. So like, like we pointed out, this article was originally published in uh, a journal in Hebrew for the Hebrew university. 
So um, uh, he's obviously coming from uh, an Israeli scholarship perspective, which is going to be very thorough with the rabbinic sources. And But yet he is not reading those rabbinic sources or the Haggadah as um, he's not taking it at surface level. What, In other words, he's, the, not, he's not just taking the rabbis, oh, this text says this rabbi said this, therefore this just must be true. He's not taking that at face value. What he's saying is that we need to read each of these things in context. What Yuval has done mm-hmm. is actually quite shocking to me because he has um, kind of come against traditional uh, Jewish thought on rabbinic sources. In other words, you know, he's saying the rabbis, uh, they formed their, their Haggadah after the destruction of the temple, and that a lot of it was a response to Christianity. This is super interesting because the more I study about the, the modern Haggadah, the more I— And, you know, uh, for those who, uh, who heard our show, I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and I said that I had uh, been working on my own—creating uh, my own Haggadah, that's available, by the way. It's in, uh, it's in the articles section of Torah Resource. Uh, you can go to the articles and then find the Passover Haggadah for Disciples of Yeshua. Um, you'll notice that there's a lot of stuff taken out that's in the traditional Haggadah. And basically what I've done is I've incorporated apostolic scripture readings and also the telling of the Exodus story. And I've lengthened the Exodus story to include Moses, which the traditional Haggadah does not. And uh, it's suggested by Daub. Is it Daub or is it by uh, Yuval that that, uh, perhaps the reason why is because they didn't want an intercessor, a human intercessor between God and the people in the story, and this could be because uh, Yeshua was claimed to have been, been the right. It says not by a seraph, not by a moloch, not by an angel. Right, right. Um, so they take out all human intercessory, <laughs> like Moses included, out of the out of the uh, retelling of the Haggadah story. Um, very interesting. Um, some of the other things. One of the other things that I thought was was really interesting was Dayenu, and uh, we can read from a little bit of this. Um, so. I'll read, I'll read a, uh, a little excerpt from Yuval's article. This is on page 104 of the book that, uh, that uh, Rob has suggested. The problematic view that po- posits Judaism as the source of every Christian ritual or text is exemplified by scholarly opinion on the relationship between the Christian improperia for Good Friday liturgy and the Passover Haggadah poem, Dianu. The similarities between these two texts are apparent and are discussed in depth by Eric Werner and Stuart G. Hall, both of whom adopt Goldschmidt's claim that Dianu was composed during the last century of the Temple era and must therefore be a forerunner to the Christian parallel. But, as Hoffman demonstrates, this assumption is unwarranted. Goldschmidt himself admits that Tenaitic and Amoraic literature never mentions Dianu, which appears first in the 10th century prayer book of Sa'adia Geon as an optional addition to the Haggadah. On the other hand, even though the Improperia itself is Byzantine, its origins, as Eric Warner has shown, go back to Melito of Sardis' composition. Um, and that would be second century. So in other words, the you know we sing Dayenu mm-hmm. at the or we have I took it out of my uh, Haggadah, but uh, you know it's traditional to sing Dayenu and we've we've sang Dayenu, but what he is suggest what Yuval is suggesting here is that Dayenu is actually a response or a correlation with um, with a 
a traditional what he calls Easter, but uh, pass you know Christian Passover tradition right. of the second century. Right now, of course, an Orthodox you know rabbi would reject that approach because the, the response by an Orthodox uh, you know rabbi who says this is revealed from Sinai. In other words, that this is oral tradition that goes all the way back to Moses. And that, um, so then, then you're at an impasse at that point, right? I mean, if someone just says, well, Caleb, you took that out, therefore your Passover is not, you have not fulfilled your obligation. Right. You've, you're inventing your own Passover. And unless you do this, 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 and this, and unless you're even halakhically Jewish, they would add, your Passover is is uh, null and void. It, ha- it has no meaning, right? I mean, that's that's where that discussion is going to lead. If you once once the historical um, viewpoint that Yuval is showing is is wedged out of the room, basically. So that the. the so the question then is the place for chronology and history and history in our ritual life. Are we, do we have freedom to make the, make the telling of the Passover, the Pesach, um, unique for our own homes? I'd say absolutely. I, I, I am totally on board with that. But of course, not uh, everybody, especially when you have halakhic quantities, you know, measurements, numbers of cups, um, liturgically recited text, right? The Hillel sandwich, right? Okay, hang on. That's, we should talk about each one of these. One of, okay. we, should, we should talk about each one of these. So the idea of, of multiple cups, uh, as I think most of our listeners probably know, there's traditionally four cups within the Passover Seder. Right, and each one of them has a specific meaning. And uh, I think any any person who follows Torah uh, and has done a Passover seder, the person leading the the Passover seder is going to say, "This is the cup a cup of redemption," and this is probably the cup that Yeshua, you know, said, "This is my," or you know, "This is the cup of justification," these kind of things. Um, which, but th- but that that's uh, it's super late. Putting meaning on the cups is super late. And to be honest with you, the idea of multiple cups probably, once again, is, is cultural. It comes from the Greco-Roman Dapenon and, and, the, and the Symposium. And uh, there's nothing wrong with, with the fact that uh, it's cultural. But right. it seems that the, that the rabbis are trying to give meaning to something that is already set forth in the, in the Seder. Um, right. This is, can I talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, this hang on, hang on. I, can, can I just oh, real ahead. quick, can I just real quick, uh, uh, there's a discussion going on in the chat room. Did the disciples of Yeshua, would the disciples of Yeshua accept uncircumcised people in the Paschal meal? And the answer is probably, but they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover lamb. The only thing you can't do if you're uncircumcised is sacrifice and, and, um, and eat the Passover lamb. Uh, Abraham was, was uh, justified before he was circumcised. And PJ says, Caleb, how would that uh, prescription apply today? I won't have non-believers at my Passover meal. That's how that would apply today. And I think, I think uh, Paul's pretty clear about this in 1 Corinthians 11. 
So I don't, I wouldn't have non-believers at my at my Passover meal. Would I have um, Would I have Christians at my Passover meal? Yes, of course they're believers. So the the idea by uh, the person in the um, in the chat room that is suggesting that Christianity is a false religion, um, I once again reject that. Okay, please go ahead and talk about the uh, four cups. Oh well, I was going to say that you know spurred uh, by Yuval's starting point, I didn't I didn't. Uh or he didn't talk about this specifically, but if you look at early interpretations of, of the Passover, of now remember the word Pascha is Aramaic for Pesach, Pascha. Right. And it was used in the Septuagint to translate Pesach. It was, was transliterated, but it's not a Hebrew transliteration of Hebrew. It's a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word, right. Pascha. And so we have that through the Second Temple period. We have Pascha is the, the term we would call an Aramaic term to describe what we think of as Passover. Um, even by the second century, you have Tertullian who argues that the word Pascha has to do with suffering because Paschain, the verb Pascho in Greek means I suffer and they sound alike. And so he's doing a, a midrash in Greek that associates Yeshua's suffering with the name of the feast and that this feast was a prophecy. So this is Tertullian, right, writing in the second, early third century. You have uh, Origen, just, a, you know, maybe a generation. One, he's 184 to 253, so um, early third century. He takes it to mean, Pascha to mean to transition from the things of, of this world to the things of God, not as a suffering. And, and he draws on, a, on Philo of Alexandria that earlier did a similar thing like that. So what, the reason I even bring that up is that this shows that you have efforts in the second and third century to try to tell story around what this word Pascha means, and there's no unified consensus. Okay, right. now that's on the, the 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 Christian quote side of things. If you look at the Mishnah, which comes from the same time frame, the Mishnah just says there's four cups, but it doesn't tell the implication what the meaning of the cups it are. It doesn't say why. Yeah. It doesn't say why. We don't get that until the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, unpacks that. And and this is what you'll find that it says why four cups? Why do we do these four cups? The first rabbi that responds, Rabbi Yochanan, he says that these are the four cups, and it refers to Exodus 6, 6 through 7, which is the traditional way that it's basically taken today. I will take you to be my people, right? I will take out, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take, those four. But there are other opinions given. Rabbi Joshua ben Levi says these are the four cups about Pharaoh, and the scriptures cited are from Genesis 40. So each of these, and this is, gets to Caleb's point about the, the symposia being a place where you have the cups and then you tell a story around the cups. So Rabbi Yochanan tells, cites verses uh, uh, for each. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi says, no, it's, it's this, it's the cups of Joseph's dream, the cups of Pharaoh. Rabbi Levi says it's the four kingdoms. Babylon, Media, Greece, Rome, right? And and then, but the rabbis say the four cups are for the judgment of the nations. And so there's citations from the Psalms and from Jeremiah about the the wrath of God, 
the cup of the wrath of God. So the idea here is that you have <laughs> in the Jerusalem Talmud, which we're going to put between the you know fourth, maybe fourth century, fourth fifth century, is uh, not it doesn't give a fixed thing. It says here's just different viewpoints of what these cups right. are. If you look in the parallel Gemara in the Babylonian Talmud, which is later than the Jerusalem Talmud, remember, by a, by 100 years or so, the Bavli doesn't have any of that information. The Bavli says the rabbis instituted the four cups symbolizing Herut, which is freedom. They, there's no more discussion of, of what it is. It's just the four cups mean freedom. And... What, why I point that out? Why do we look at Tertullian, Origen, the Mishnah, and then the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud? Because what we're doing is we're going to that time in history, and we do a, a, a synchronic view. In other words, we're going to look at what are contemporary voices all talking about Passover saying. And what we see is like you, you see the, the scattered interpretations, and you don't see any evidence for a unifying official voice that's and it's in that space that you've all and other historical scholars want to say we have we can't we can't dismiss that right we need to appreciate that they didn't have internet they didn't have telephones right communication was still at best horseback and you have different cultures different communities that didn't even know each other's existed necessarily um and they're all trying to make sense of of the shared obligation that goes way back, the obligation to mark Passover and to, to celebrate it. Um, and so with that diversity of evidence, I'm of the same opinion that I, I think that uh, to Yuval's thesis, we need to appreciate that there was no monolithic Haggadah, that the desire to attach meaning is, is there just as it is for us today. We want to attach meaning. We don't want to sit through a, a Passover Seder right. and not have any of it mean anything to us, right? That I mean, what good is that? I mean, that's not the point. The point is to identify with, and for believers in Yeshua, it's obligatory. You identify with the death of Yeshua. You identify with um, his death. Like Paul says, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes and the unity of the body. In other words, you've got Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, free, all eating around the same table, eating the same bread, drinking from the same cup. And that was a that was an innovation. In if you compare with the the Haverot, the 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 Haverot are the the groups that were very exclusive. Who were they going to let um, eat in? Was your was it tithe properly? You know where halakhic constraints really define who is able to participate. So, so the, the restraint for believers is that Paul makes it clear is that you need to judge yourself. You got to You got to make right. sure, you know, because this is the wrath <laughs> you're drinking. What happens to the person who drinks it unworthily? What does he say? Well, what is drinking okay. the wrath of God on you? Hang on just a sec. What, what do we think by, what do we think is uh, unworthy? In other words, I, I think that even going back to the to the um, to the discussion that was in the chat room, you know, the idea of can you can you eat the Passover 
Can you eat the Passover meal, was how it was posed, with uh, without being circumcised? Well, the answer, especially today, without a Passover lamb, yes, of course you can. But what Paul, what I think Paul is emphasizing is you should not sit down and eat the Passover with an uncircumcised heart. That's the point, right? You're, they're in the diaspora, so they don't have the lamb. But he's saying, you know, you need to have a circumcised heart, essentially. And this is the truth of, of the Passover I think at all times, especially now that the Messiah has has come and died. Let's go back to the Yuval article real quick. Here's uh, one that he brings up that I think is extremely subtle, but very interesting. So these are the kind of things that I had never even considered or thought about within the Passover Haggadah. This is on page 107. He says, The assumption that the Haggadah was composed in part with an eye to excluding Christian heretics explains also the image of the wicked son. Now, what he's doing, he's, he's saying that uh, the Passover Haggadah was composed partly to exclude Christians. And uh, so now he's going to point to the four sons, uh, right? Uh, you have four different kinds of children who ask the question, what does this mean? And uh, he says, uh, the four son narrative, our Haggadah presents the wicked son as asking, what does this service mean to you? By throwing into question the laws and commandments, say our text, he excludes himself from the community and denies the foundation of our faith, a description that suits the Jewish Christian very well. The, uh, we therefore see a new meaning to the answer that is assigned to the wise son or to the foolish son, according to the Yerushalmi. It cites Mishnah Pesachim 10.8, uh, which says, One may not conclude the Paschal Lamb with Afikomenos or Afikomen, in order to understand this. And so he goes on. But anyway, the point is, is what is you know what does this mean to you, well, why why have they come up with this question and this kind of son? What Yuval is suggesting is they've come up with it because the Christians have have now started to move away from the Torah. And what the what the Jewish Haggadah is trying to say and do is say, no, you have excluded yourself from Israel because you no longer keep the the commands. So it's a response to Christianity. It's very interesting. Thoughts on that, Rob? No, no, I, I think that. Uh... I have in Yuval, um, his perception of Christianity is highly influenced by kind of what you, what we would imagine as church standard readings, for example. In other words, I, um, what one issue I do have where I would push back on some of Yuval's characterizations that he seems to take, um, how would I put it? He's far from what we would call a one Torah or even a or two Torah or any kind of viewpoint like oh, that. Oh, he's viewing Roman Catholic Church essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so that does influence his take on, on things. Absolutely. Um, and so he'll he'll tend to see but it it doesn't negate his point when, when he's talking about early believers or early church straying from from Torah observance. He's not. It's not totally unfounded, but I think that we we just need to be careful on there because there's still no unified tradition. But even he know he he brings it up though that there, there were the quarter decimans. You know that he knows that there was not a monolith. Um, yeah. So and then of course we've talked about Afikomenos or Afikomen. Uh, Daub was the one who you know now Daub was was lecturing in in 1966 when he. Uh, gave the lecture, He That Cometh. 
so Daub automatically assumes that the dating of the Mishnah predates the first century. He accepts the dating and he accepts what the Mishnah says as truth no matter what. In other words, it was Hillel's tradition, uh, th this and that. So, you know, he'll say, well, it says it was Hillel's tradition, so we have to date this around 15 BC, which is before Christ. So he's going to now put everything into. Um, so that's only 50 years ago. <clears throat> and people were doing that, right? Right. I mean, people were thinking that way. And that's what we need to we need to learn to not think that way. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, what he would say is that uh, is that, for instance, um, well, Afi Komenos is a perfect example. He says that uh, there was a tradition that was well established within the Jewish communities uh, that was looking to the coming of the Messiah. And this coming of the Messiah uh, was called the one who comes, and in Greek that's afikomenos. And so he says, well, this was an, a well-established uh, tradition, and when Yeshua says, do this in remembrance of me, he's actually referencing this afikomenos, which represented the Messiah at the Passover Seder, and he's saying the Messiah is with you at table. We've talked about this on the show before. Um, obviously, I think that this is not the case. I think that it's the other way around. In other words, Yeshua says, do this in remembrance of me. The Christian or the believing community now incorporates uh, something into their Passover celebration, which they call afikomenos, and the Jewish rabbis then see this uh, established tradition within the Christian Passover meal, and they basically take it and, and turn it around. Even in the Mishnah, they don't know what in the world it's for. They just say you're not allowed to end the uh, the Passover uh, meal with afikomen, which, uh, I mean, I, there, but there's no explanation. And then, of course, in the Talmud, they, they debate what it means um, that you're not allowed to conclude with afikomen. Uh, in the same way, uh, what was another one? That, oh, the Hillel sandwich. Uh, you know, Daub suggests that the Hillel sandwich dates back to Hillel, 15 B.C., and that he used to make a sandwich that would uh, that incorporated bitter herbs, uh, the lamb, and uh, the matzah. Right. And but what's interesting is that he it's like he's right there in in what he's saying. It's like Daub is right. He's almost got it. And because what I think is happening is, um, and I think it is it Yuval who brings that up, or is it just Daub? Anyway, the point is is that you have a blessing for the matzah. And you have a blessing for the bitter herbs right before you have the halal sandwich. And for the halal sandwich, there's no blessing at all. However, it says we do this in remembrance of Rabbi Halal, who lived in the first century. And then it goes on to explain him creating the sandwich to fulfill a commandment. Well, Daub's point is that we're essentially Yeshua takes this theology for himself. Remember me during the, the Passover Haggadah. I think it's totally the other way around. In other words, Yeshua says, do this in remembrance of me. And later, the later rabbis say, well, we're not going to remember Yeshua. Let's remember a different first century rabbi. And so this is where they insert the Hillel sandwich. Which has, and one of the reasons that I think this is uh, very interesting is because there is no blessing before it. It's just a time to stop and remember a, a first century rabbi. Another reason, in the first draft of my... Um, in in the first draft of my of my Haggadah, I actually put the Hillel sandwich in, and it was kind of in a weird place anyway. And then I just thought, this is ridiculous. After I you know after I started studying this, I thought, why would I want to remember a different rabbi except for the one true rabbi who says do this in remembrance of me? And so now, if you go to the to that same file on Torah resource, it's been taken out. Uh, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, the the I did I did some uh, research. You know, another good resource is Hebrewbooks.org. Of course, all the books are Hebrew. Again, you search them in Hebrew, but um, you can look at scans of European Haggadahs from the printing press on. So you you see there's all manner of Ashkenazi uh, Haggadot, you know, from different times and places, and you can download them and you can just look through them. You know, there's scans of, of books that are hundreds of years old and uh, how they were, what the Seder looked like at different times. And you can see it kind of uh, what what people read. Well, um, the the place where the, the Hillel sandwich is has a telling of of the story of of Halel Hazaken, right? Halel the Elder, and what he would do, and he would make a sandwich with the matzah, and he would put the the maror, the the bitter herbs, in it and eat it. And I, you know, if you want to push and find out, well, where's the earliest? Where do we first hear of this? It's actually in the Babylonian Talmud. It's not in the Jerusalem Talmud. It's not in the Mishnah. It's not in any Midrashim. It's in, and it's in Zevachim, uh, right. which is not, it's not in Pesachim. And why is it in Zevachim, which is uh, slaughterings, right? Uh, uh, tractate on slaughtering animals. It is there because it's, it's just a footnote on uh, a dispute about whether commandments nullify one another. And we don't need to get in all the detail, but basically the, the punchline is that Hillel made a sandwich where he put all the different things you're supposed to eat in Paso, at Pesach and put them together and ate them together. And the matzah, his eating of the matzah still fulfilled the command. His eating of the Passover lamb still filled, fulfilled the command. And his eating of the maror, the bitter herb, also fulfilled the command even though it was all mixed together. In other words, it, uh, the, no, that's the argument. And they bring that in as the statement. And, and uh, that's basically it. It's just a one-liner. Uh, there's no story involved. It just said that, that he would put them in a bait achat, in one house, basically. And what the one, one house means is just in one uh, and close them in one sandwich. The verb is korech. Uh, he would make them in a, in a sandwich and eat them together, and that none of the commandments were nullified by him mixing them. That's all it is. But, but that story gets expanded a little bit when it's, when it's recited in various uh, versions of the Seder. And it is interesting, you know, well, we don't hear this story until, you know, late in the Bavli, you know, it, uh, about a first century, a guy who lived four or 500 years prior that he would do this, such and such a thing. And that then it's only in late, uh, satyrs where it becomes a fixed additional recited element. And, you know, there's something to your point, Caleb, I think about here's a, a first century, a, an imagined, um, meal event of a first century rabbi who's keeping Passover and how he's eating, what he's doing with it. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, that is another parallel, I guess you could say, because if you're a believer in Yeshua, you're remembering a first century rabbi and what he did with the matzah. Um, so, 
So, the, I mean, what's the punchline of all of this? The, and, and the ultimate punchline here is I'm not saying that you should or should not uh, keep these, these uh, traditions. That's totally up to you. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the prayer over the menim, the menim, right? The prayer over the heretics that has been added to the 18 benedictions. It's not 18 benedictions anymore. It's actually 19 benedictions, even though it's called 18 benedictions still. Um, and the reason why is because they, it's I believe that they, and I think, yeah. Anyway, there's a prayer that seems to be against the heretic that is against the heretics, and uh, it's argued that this was actually written against the Christians. So one of the debates that comes up uh, when looking at the traditional Jewish prayer book, should believers um, say the, the prayer against the heretics? And some people will say, oh, it's no problem. It's, it's not a big deal. Um, there's nothing that specifically says Christians or anything like that. And uh, then other people will say, no, I'm not going to say it because it's against, against the Christians. Okay. Well, the same could be said about the Passover Haggadah. Um, you know, we, it's important to know what is tradition, uh, what, what has been brought from cultural tradition. It's also important to know what has been written in response to Christianity, I think. Now, that's not necessarily to say that we should be dogmatic one way or the other. If I went to somebody's Passover, um, you know, Passover Seder, and they, they want to do a full traditional Passover Seder, I would do it with them. I have no problem with that. Um, but the point is, is that knowing where these things come from and knowing why they were written— or uh, at least having a, a strong suspicion of why they were written, is important for our own knowledge so that we can determine whether or not we want to incorporate them into our Passover uh, Seder, our Passover Haggadah. Uh, with that being said, the reason that I wanted to rewrite the Passover Haggadah myself was simply, actually, this was not for Torah Resource, um, but then I, I worked on it so much that uh, we decided, okay, yeah, we, we can put it up. But it was actually just for uh, my uh, my Seder and for the fact that we had children, I wanted to try to shorten things. So I st started taking things out that I thought were just tradition and weren't necessarily uh, super important. But, um, you know, I tried to just start what, what do you shave off? What do you narrow down to make this a much shorter uh, experience for the children? Um, and even as it came out, if you read my introduction, all those things, I'm sure it would probably be longer. And that's not the point. The point is that you can start pretty much wherever you want. You can skip things and, and those kind of things. But what I wanted to focus on was the telling of the Exodus story and how that is also uh, our, our redemption from Exodus, which is also a redemption from sin, right, through the shed blood of the Messiah Yeshua. Um, so uh, this, is the, this is the point. I, I see some people uh, in the chat room saying, well, you know, does anyone here celebrate a full Passover Seder or... Uh, I, you know, I would never take this out or that. Um, well, I've celebrated a what I would consider a, a fairly traditional Passover Seder for the past 30 years, um, and this will be the first year that we de that I deviate. It's the first year that I'm hosting a Passover Seder at my own house, and so I I decided to deviate from the traditional Passover Seder, and uh, I don't know. Well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. You know, I'm trying to focus on something specific, which is the redemption that we have through Yeshua and his death on the, on, on the cross, along with the redemption from Egypt. Um, so uh, That's it. There you go. Yeah. So this is not necessarily, please don't hear me saying, oh, no one should be celebrating these things. But I do think it's very interesting to see the formation of the Haggadah. I think it, once again, what it does is it shows that the Mishnah itself was not, 
you know, it's not this thing that goes back to the, you can't look at the Mishnah and say, oh, this is earlier than the Gospels that went back before Yeshua was on earth. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. Um, from Just from Pesachim itself, from the tractate Pesachim itself, we can see how much uh, seems to be a, a response to Christianity and not vice versa. And we certainly don't have, a pa- you can't take a medieval Passover Haggadah and say that was normative for first century. Right. What do you guys do? Do you guys keep a pretty traditional uh, Passover Seder? I'm big... I'm big on the storytelling, and so it's very not—we um, read, in terms of fixed liturgy, we read all the Hallel Psalms. Yep. We read, um, i trying to remember, basic, basic story uh, with—I I think we read— a the last couple chapters of the gospel of Mark. Um, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but, but the big idea is this is, is the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, the promise to Abraham, right? We go back. I, I make a point to start with, with Abraham and that we understand the redemption from Egypt, not as a brand new thing, that God just right. saw, oh, there's people suffering. I better, you know, maybe I should do something about it. <laughs> that, that's, that that's not the starting point. The starting point is Abraham who believed, even while uncircumcised physically, and God did an amazing thing and continued to do an amazing thing through history. And so I also like to make it very discussion-oriented. I like to get the questions going and you know sometimes it, it it works better than others but the idea is getting the story engaged getting people thinking about it and understanding what what it means to be uh, walking the uh, in a life of faith in Messiah Yeshua of being found in him being part of, of his resurrection life and not having the wrath of God um, on you right I mean that's that's a that's a big big one I think showing the the similarities or how the Passover story the Exodus story is the story of our redemption from sin right it is the same story that we see in Yeshua. Uh, being crucified on the cross, I think this is one of the big things to focus on during Passover. Okay, so well, I would whether you whether you stick with a you have a fixed what we would call a traditional liturgy. Now, even what a traditional liturgy is going to vary from Jewish community to Jewish community. So it's not like there's even a monolithic. <laughs> uh, there's standard elements, of course, but if you're going to stick with something like that, or if you're going to uh, take the liberty to to adjust it to make it your own. Um, whatever you do, it is important that you identify with the story. And this is true. This is true uh, not only in the Mishnah, right? Because it, it says the person who, ha- who who one is obligated to see themselves as if they themselves were delivered from slavery. Right. I mean, that's and that's a true point in the Mishnah. That's a true point. In right. other words, if I eat a Passover meal and I don't see myself as having benefited 
in any way, then then that's pointless. So don't you don't want that. So what you do want is identification. But Paul talked about this in Romans, you know, way before the Mishnah. He says that, you know, you reckon yourselves as having died with Messiah. Right. That is that is the core piece. And that's what baptism, I think it's in Romans five, Romans six, all in you know, in that Romans three through eight, all that section. And I would encourage people to go back and read through that. Romans three through eight. Read read First Corinthians, you know. Right. Um, the idea of recognizing what it means to be a member of the body of Messiah, that there is one Ruach, that there is one body, and that um, we are members of one another, um, and that we, we're not using what first century, whether it was religious Jewish or even Roman, ideas of, of identity, of like, you're this, therefore... A, B, and C, and you're this, therefore A, B, and C, like prejudging people based on these categories. Rather, it's, it's Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians, you have, you have Jews, Gentiles, males, females, slave, free, etc., all born again, all right. enjoying fellowship, unity in the, the body of Messiah, which yes. is a new way of looking at others, new way of looking at the world. And this is how the Torah of loving God and loving one another is to be fulfilled. So that's a core, that's like the core centerpiece here because it's through Yeshua's death, which is the the Passover, right? It's through his death that we are redeemed. We are protected from the wrath of God. We don't have God's wrath on us like those who aren't in Yeshua, what they do have that wrath on them. Right. Mm. All right. Good discussion. I hope that uh, people have learned something here. And uh, I hope that uh, no matter what you may believe about uh, what we've said, you can take it and uh, understand the Passover Haggadah as we have it today a little bit better. And uh, if you want to let us know what you think, please go ahead. Call us, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Shoot us an email. My email is chag at torahresource.com. You can also email Rob, R. Van Hoff at torahresource.com, or you can email us both at the same time. That's always good. We appreciate that. <coughs> Excuse me. And, of course, we will be back not only next week, but uh, the week after that is going to be our Passover special. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do for it, but we sure are going to have fun. We hope that your Passover will do one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. And why? Because Messiah matters. <laughs>